Hi, well, welcome to this week's edition of the video series on the Bible studies we're doing right now. Uh, I started a few weeks ago looking at a series I'm calling sort of Foundations. You know, why do we believe what we believe? How um, do we relate to God? How is He relating to us? You know, does He have any purpose for us? The first week we actually talked about God's plan and that plan being stated in Genesis 1:26, where he said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And if we remember that, then it helps us put an idea with the different things we see and experience along the way and how God is interacting with us and how he's using it as we looked at in Romans 8, 28 and 29, how he's using all things to work together for good. And then 29 says, He's conforming us to the image of Christ that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So he's still on task. He's still working with that. He's still got his plan in mind and he knew what all the roadblocks would be along the way before he ever started. Uh, the second week we looked at God's character and how <clears throat> his character uh, never changes. It's always dependable. And so uh, relating to God day in and day out. We don't have to come to work one day and try to figure out, <clears throat> excuse me, what kind of mood the boss is in today or what kind of mood God is in uh, in regards to us because he's always the same. And that gives us great confidence on how we relate to him. He, he's, he's knowable um, because he reveals himself to us. That's really important. And he's leading us towards a mature life. The third week, we talked about the sin problem that there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose to um, <clears throat> disobey God. Uh, and we looked at how that was a, an act of um, rebellion, but it was based on deception. You know, the, the serpent came along and deceived Eve, and she thought, boy, the tree is good for food and delight to the eyes, desirable to make you wise. So she took from the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband with her, and they, they ate and they sinned. And um, that caused a problem. But that problem was not a surprise to God. The Bible tells us that Christ was the lamb who was slain, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So the idea that God is having to deal with sin was more of a surprise to us than him. He fully knew, uh, knew fully well that it was coming. And uh, so... <clears throat> God is still on his goal. He's still headed in that direction, conforming us to his image. Uh, so, but he counted the cost. He knew that it would cost him the life of his son on a cross before he ever began the project, before he ever said, let there be light and created everything, including us. He already knew what that ultimately would cost him to bring us to maturity and the fullness of the stature that belongs to Christ, like it says in the New Testament. So what is sin? Well, it's faithlessness. It's just not trusting God. Uh, there's acts of sin that we do out of that faithfulness, faithlessness, but in reality, it's just not trusting him. And he said, the day you eat, you'll die. And they did. They died spiritually. They were disconnected from God because God is life. Without a connection to God, we don't have life. Just because we're breathing, that doesn't mean we actually have life. It just means we're moving around. 
because uh, life is God. Uh, life is not just breathing. All right, so that tells us that man is actually a dependent being. We were created dependent. We were never created to grow up and get over our need for God. Uh, just as uh, a car is dependent upon gasoline or diesel fuel, whatever it burns, to go down the road. Nowadays, electricity in some of the battery-powered cars. Uh, just like a flashlight is dependent upon the battery on the inside to be able to shine. We were never created to be independent of the one who is all power. He's all powerful. He's omnipotent. All right. So that's why it says when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we receive power. We're like an empty flashlight with no battery until Christ comes in. Now we're there. We've got all the parts, but none of them work because we don't actually have the power source without Christ. So the, what are the effects of sin? We looked at how we become dependent upon ourselves. Uh, we form our own truths. Um, we become the blind leading the blind and begin to worship idols, try to find other places to get our needs met in the world and so forth. But life, like I said, is not just breathing because our purpose in life is to remain connected to God and let his life in us be what causes his life to shine through us. All right, so this next lesson that we're going to start today or speak about today is I'm, I've titled it Man Left to Himself. You know, we humans are pretty good at looking around at our circumstances and feeling like, well, I, I built that house or I wrote this book or this song or whatever. And we, because we're doing stuff, we feel like we're accomplishing something. And we are in, in that physical sense. But man was not created to find out what man could do. And I think that's the, uh, uh, that's the root of a lot of uh, erroneous directions we take as mankind. Man was created to display what God could do. Okay, we were made in his image according to his likeness. The New Testament talks about, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so he wants us to love others the way he loves us. Okay, so not human love that he wants us to distribute to other people. He wants us to distribute divine love. And you can't give what you don't have. And so this connection to God is paramount. It's absolutely indispensable. You know, we can do stuff without God. A lot of people without God are doing stuff all the time. But we can't do the stuff God created us to do, which was be like him. All right, so because we tend to deceive ourselves and think because I'm building houses and whatever else I do in life, uh, that I must be accomplishing something. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something worthwhile. Um, the scripture tells us, you know, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Um, well, there's, there's some stories in the Bible that help us understand that God is not looking to see what we can do, he wants us to learn what he can do and live out of that. All right, so what would happen if God left us to ourselves? Well, he actually knew what that would be. He knew about sin before the foundation of the world. He knew about the death of Christ on the cross. He knew about the end that hasn't even come yet, our future yet still. He already knows that. All right, so I believe he left man to himself for a while so that we would know the end result 
of man's efforts to live on his own. If you look at the scripture in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, that's a, that is a huge blanket statement. This wraps up everything that man was doing prior to, or from the time of uh, the, the sin in the Garden of Eden up till the flood that Noah built the boat for. Uh, every intent of every thought in man's heart was only evil continually. You see, we needed to see what the end result uh, would be if man was left to himself to figure out the purpose of our existence on our own. So God intervened. You know the story, uh, he came to Noah. Hopefully you know the story, maybe you don't. Um, and he said, Noah, I want you to build me a boat, a really big boat and collect some animals and get in it. I'm gonna bring rain that had never happened before and we're gonna flood the earth and we're gonna start this thing over with you and your family. And sure enough, that happened 120 years later. It took him 120 years to build the boat. And during that time, he was telling the people around where he lived um, what was coming, and they probably thought he was crazy. You know, crazy Noah building a boat in the middle of the desert and telling us it's going to rain and flood the earth, and they just probably thought it was crazy. All right, so that happened, and the boat rose above the flood, and after a long period of time, 40 days and 40 nights, the rain stopped. It was almost a year before the, uh, they actually could come out of the ark and begin to start over. All right, so one of the first things that happens, now it covers probably long periods of time in just a verse or two here and there in the Bible. You know, he planted a vineyard and he, Noah did, and he turned the grapes into wine and one day he got drunk. Well, he didn't, he didn't do that in one day. You know, it takes a while to plant a vineyard and grow grapes and make wine and all that. And his younger son, the Bible says, walked into the tent, Noah was drunk, and his younger son saw him laying there without any clothes on. And when his father woke up and he realized whatever that event was, he, uh, he said, curse be Canaan. Now, Ham, Ham was God's son. He, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham um, is the one who saw his father. But when Noah woke up, he said, cursed be Canaan. And he went on to talk about how he'll be a servant of servants and all these kind of things. Well, who was he? Well, he was actually Ham's son. So he didn't do anything wrong. But Noah pronounced this curse, if you will, on his grandson. Well, I'm going to talk about a very significant um, reality about that particular statement that shows up in the scripture that really helps us understand that as believers, why we still struggle with what the Bible calls the flesh. <clears throat> so this thing is going along. A man is growing. Uh, they're spreading all over the earth again. They're multiplying, just like they did, you know, after the after the creation story. And they lived a long time. Even Noah lived, you know, close to 900 years, and uh, they were still living a long time even after the flood for a while. And we come to this story in the Bible in Genesis 11, where they're building this tower. We call we call it the Tower of Babel, and um, 
it's in the area that became eventually Babylon and uh, that area in the Fertile Crescent over there. Um, and so he comes down, the Bible says this, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And the Lord said, behold, uh, they are one people and they have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. All right, so whatever they cook up on their own, they will be able to do it. So then verse seven says in Genesis 11, um, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused their languages, the language of the whole earth. And there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. You know, we, we talk about that guy's a babbling idiot. You know, when you can't, when somebody's just, Gibberish, that's what it sounded like to each other, just gibberish coming out of each other's mouth when he confused their languages. And why would he do that? Again, they were able to accomplish, he said, anything they set their mind to do. They can do anything they purpose. It won't be impossible for them. But we're not here to see what we can do. We're here to show what God can do. And before the flood, man's heart was only evil continually. Well, nothing had changed. And they developed all kind of idol worship and everything else after the flood. So he began to intervene and interact with man on a more personal level. And um, in order to bring man to the end of himself, so we would turn back to God, I believe. Now, throughout this process, after the flood and people began to multiply, there was this guy that was growing up in the region around where the Tower of Babel was being built in Ur of the Chaldees. His name was Abram. And he began to worship God. And there were lots of gods being worshiped again at that point. They began to do idol worship all over again, but he was a, a follower of the true God. And the Lord made him promise one day that uh, he was gonna do some things for him. But before that, the Lord appeared and said, Abram, I want you to leave this area where your fathers and everybody have grown up and raised their families. I want you to go somewhere else to a land that I'm gonna show you because there I'm gonna make you a great nation and you have lots of descendants and all of that. And uh, throughout the process, you know, he takes his nephew Lot with him and they go and they go to another part of the world. Lot stays in the area around Sodom and Gomorrah and he's there when the fire and brimstone falls and they take Lot and his daughters and wife out and all that that angels do. Other stories you can go read and look at someday. But Abraham winds up by himself over in this area that is now where Israel is. And God says, I'm going to give all of this to you. Well, at one point, before the Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, some people, you know, they, they go in and they, they attack Sodom and they take Lot and all of his family and they carry off all of his possessions, Abraham's nephew, and uh, Abram hears about it. And so he gets his men together, several hundred, and they go attack the guys that stole Lot and all of his stuff. And, and they get it all back. And coming back from that defeat of those uh, enemies, he runs into a guy named Melchizedek. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, these, these events are very important to tell us what God's doing, where he's leading us, what he's all about. And... 
in uh, Hebrews, it talks about Melchizedek quite a bit. You can read about him back in Genesis chapter 14, how Abram met him after the fight and he was a priest. And so Abram gave him a, a tenth of all the spoils of war and uh, Melchizedek blessed him. And you can read about a lot of that in Hebrews in the New Testament, how uh, Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God and that his name meant King of Righteousness. And he was the King of Salem, which was ancient Jerusalem, okay? So he was the, and Salem means peace. So he was the King of Righteousness by translation of his name and the King of Peace by where he ruled on earth. And he was in this area that was gonna be given to Abraham or his name was still Abram at this point, he hadn't been re renamed, and his descendants. Um, so this priest of the Most High God is also a foreshadowing of the coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a, there's a scriptures in, in Hebrews that tells us that you are a priest. It starts back in the Psalms where it says, uh, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Hebrews explains that. What, what did the psalmist mean when he said that? Well, you know, Jesus even told us the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So righteousness, that rightness with God, um, the peace that comes from being uh, right with God. You know, uh, Romans 5.1 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Okay, we're made righteous by faith and we have peace with God. You know, Paul talks about in Philippians 3, we talked about it a few weeks ago, that he gave up everything he thought was gonna make him righteous in order to gain righteousness by faith on the basis of faith. You can read about that in Philippians 3. In Hebrews 7, it says this, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and a tithe, um, a tribe, uh, with reference to which Moses uh, spoke nothing concerning priests, all right? So priests came from the tribe of Levi. And why was Christ being a priest when he was from the tribe of Judah? And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested to him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you can read more about that in Hebrews chapter seven, how Melchizedek really foreshadowed the coming Christ, not only by his name, but where he ruled, the righteousness and the peace, and that Christ was gonna be a priest according to a new order, not the one of the law. And we'll discuss the law in weeks to come. <clears throat> so people of faith really stand out all down through time, you had Enoch, the seventh generation, I believe it was, from Adam, who walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Uh, you had Abram that showed up on the scene. He was a man of faith, and we'll, we'll talk a lot more about him and what that's all about in the Abrahamic covenant. Um, you know, he promised Abram, for instance, that you will be, uh, your descendants will be innumerable. Um, and so what they did when that promise came to Abram, who was in this moment renamed Abraham, 
One meant exalted father, one meant father of a multitude. Uh, Abraham means father of a multitude. They, it is, they cut a sacrifice. Now this is very important, and I'll finish with this one idea. They'll build something we can build on, you know, lay some more stones we can build on next week. Um, when they cut the animals for the sacrifice in order to seal this promise that God was going to make with Abraham, a covenant normally was, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. That would be a bilateral agreement, a typical contract, if you will. You think of a covenant as a contract. Well, Abraham prepared the sacrifice because the sacrifice was how they um, sealed the deal, so to speak. And what typically would happen is they'd cut the animals in two, they'd lay half over here and half over there, and they would walk between the halves of the animals and say, the Lord do so to me and more if I don't fulfill my promise. Otherwise, cut me in half, you know, kill me. Uh, my life is on the line here. Well, Abraham got the sacrifices all prepared, and it said he was waiting and waiting. You can read about this in Genesis 15, and um, got tired and fell asleep. And while he was sleeping, he had a dream, and he saw what looked like a smoking furnace to him that went between the sacrifices by himself. There were several animals they'd cut in half. And the furnace went between the sacrifice by, all by itself, and the voice of the Lord said things like, I will, surely I will bless you, surely I will multiply you. And he made promises to Abraham unilaterally. And it tells us that the promise we receive from God through Jesus Christ is like the Abrahamic covenant. It wasn't, I'll do some things for you if you do some things for me. It was just, I promise I'm going to do this for you. And that's why Hebrews says, you know, it's impossible for God to lie. And he made this promise through Christ. And we have an anchor which enters within the veil that, that anchors us to God's faithfulness. He says, your descendants will be innumerable. But you know this for certain. And this will be something we'll talk about in the future weeks to come is your descendants will one day be captive in a foreign land, but I will bring them out with a strong hand after 400 years. And that's when they were brought out of, he's foretelling to Abraham the uh, exodus from Egypt and what would happen there. And remember I talked about Ham and his son Canaan. Well, Ham actually settled the region known as Egypt. <laughs> his son, Canaan, settled the region known as Canaan land or the promised land. And they were in bondage in Ham, in the area of Egypt, with no prospects. Well, God set them free by the Passover, the shedding of the blood that protected them from the death angel, and they left Egypt, but they had to enter the promised land by faith. But once they got in there, after 40 years of wandering around, rebellions and all kinds of stuff they went through, they finally get in the promised land. And who do they meet? The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and all the different ones that were in there that were going to aggravate them. He said, now you need to get rid of all those people because they'll be like thorns in your sides. And the Bible talks about Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh. And so we have this problem that even as believers in Christ, we still deal with the kind of residual effect of sin, the old belief system, the world system around us, this thing we call the flesh, which is just how I used to get my needs met apart from Christ. And we'll cover a lot of those in great detail later. But this whole process of creating man, man having a sin problem, 
God dealing with that a couple different ways. One left him to himself for a while. Now he's intervening very specifically at times to propagate mankind forward till the time he could bring the Christ who would settle the sin problem forever that we can believe in by faith and be saved and justified. And then he begins the process after that of bringing us to maturity, which a lot of that has to do with laying aside of the old self and putting on the new self, learning to walk by the spirit, not after the flesh and different things like that. So this whole history of mankind isn't as random as it feels to us. Uh, early in my Christian life, when I read the Bible, it all felt kind of random. Like, I don't even know what that means or why it's in there. But if you back, pan back and you begin to see the big picture that God started with something, making us in his image and he's still doing that, and all the sin problems and the bondage problems and everything along the way. Um, what was the law all about? We'll talk about why God gave the law through Moses. What did it do for mankind? Uh, but what is he now doing for us through Christ? And we'll, we'll, we'll cover that in weeks to come. So the main thing I'd like for you to understand this week is that God saw all this before it began. He is working his way through it. Now he sees it from beginning to end, but we're on the timeline, so we're experiencing it day in and day out. We only have the benefit of history and the opportunity uh, to believe what he says about the future, even though we can't see it. So it all goes back to faith. We're going to trust him more and more. You, you come to Christ by faith, you're saved by faith, you're reborn by faith, and he says, therefore you receive Christ, so walk with him. So if you receive him by faith, we're learning to walk with him by faith which is the opposite of what they did in the Garden of Eden. Um, they didn't trust him. So he's teaching us to trust him. Um, and I think that's a, just a great journey that all of us are on. And he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, uh, you will not be God's first failure. He will finish what he started in you and bringing you to maturity in Christ and conforming you to his image. All right, so that's a mouthful, hopefully. I've tried to cover a lot in a real short period of time. Uh, maybe we'll go into some details on these in the future and explain more of them, but I wanted to give you an overview of the, that part of mankind's history that from the garden all the way up to the time of Christ that isn't as random and crazy as it sounds. God knew what was going on, and he's still on task. He is not going to be uh, dotted by uh, the problems that mankind has brought on himself through sin and faithlessness. Uh, Christ came to solve that problem. All right, thank you for this moment to share with you. I will close us in a word of prayer, and I'll see you next time. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your uh, view of our history and our future is complete. You're not making this up as you go. You, you knew the whole thing before you started, but you're leading us through and helping us to get to know you, the one who never changes, and trust you so that our life will be a reflection of the power that you put within us through Christ and that we would shine in dark places because you, the light of the world, lives in us. We thank you for, I guess, an opportunity that we certainly did nothing to deserve, but it's a gift and it's free to everyone. So thank you again for Christ and for the blessings you've given us through him, which are abundant beyond our wildest imaginations. We ask these things in his name. Amen.